Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, my esteemed co-host is here. And today we're going to interview David Rock, um, and we're going to talk about the biases and beyond bias. We've, uh, I think this is the third time we've interviewed David. Um, but I'm really excited about this. <clears throat> David has really brought neuroscience to uh, the corporate world, and we'll ask David about kind of how that came about and some questions about uh, organizational bias. But let me just give you a little bit of uh, overview of what we're going to talk about today. You know, we're in this hyper-connected world. Poor decisions can multiply like a chain reaction. Breaking free of bias has never been more important. Many of the organizations are putting money and resources towards educating people about biases. For example, U.S. companies spend an estimated $200 million to $300 million a year on diversity programs, sensitivity training, in which executives, managers, and employees are told to watch out for biases in particular when making hiring and promotion decisions. Unfortunately, there is very little evidence that educating people about biases does anything to reduce their influence. Human biases occur outside of the conscious awareness, and thus uh, people are literally unaware of them as they occur. So Dr. David Rock today is going to tell us about more about breaking bias to maximize talent and uh, effectiveness. And Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Relly. I am super excited to have David Rock with us today. As you know, uh, we were with David in New York when he launched his fabulous Neuroleadership Summit, which has remained one of our favorite places to go on the science of the brain. And uh, we're so excited to have him because we're also celebrating uh, because we are now in our ninth year. We're the number two ranked business radio show on the Voice America Network with over a million downloads of our shows in the last four years and millions of listeners in 27 countries and 126 cities. So we know what we have to offer our leaders on leadership development news is late-breaking and state-of-the-art, and it's going to be a great show today with David. Well, great. So let me just say another word about David, and we'll bring him right on and, and start going with our questions for David. Um, so since the mid-90s, uh, David has trained over 10,000 executives uh, in personal workplace coaches in more than 64 countries. So he has a, a few different books, Quiet Leadership was the first one that I looked at, and then two exceptional books, Coaching with the Brain and Mind and Your Brain at Work, Strategies for Overcoming Distraction, Regaining Focus, and Working Smarter all day long. He is a guest lecturer at universities around the globe, including Oxford University, Sade Business School. He has a professional doctorate in neuroscience of leadership from Middlesex University in the UK, and he lives in New York with his wife and two young daughters. So, David, we're really excited to have you here. Welcome. Thanks very much, really, and Kathy, good to be here with you again. So, tell us a little bit about, you know, I remember when we've interviewed you before, they've called you the neurotransmitter. I'm always just intrigued. Just you know, how did this your interest in neuroscience come up, and then you know the neuro uh, leadership institute and everything else you're doing, and then we'll get into the bias. Yeah, sure, absolutely. 
I've been involved in, in developing leaders and, and building leadership development programs for a long, long time, um, uh, about 18 years all up. And um, all the way through, um, I'd had a personal interest in the brain. Um, I'd been reading and studying personally about the brain, but I'd never kind of connected them. Um, and at some point, um, about 12 years ago now, I started to just include a few snippets about how the brain works. In, um, in various programs I was running for, for coaches and for leaders. And um, I just found people had tremendous insight um, at a much deeper level about uh, what we were teaching them, you know, whether, it was, whether we were teaching building trust or you know, developing teams or how to influence people, whatever it was. Um, when, we, when we were actually able to explain some authentic science of what really happened in the brain, um, people really got the ideas that much better. And it wasn't just a marketing thing or it wasn't just filling seats and it wasn't just that they believed what we were saying. It's they actually understood the, 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 like literally the building blocks um, of, of the muscles necessary to, to be better um, as leaders. They, they, really, like, like they really saw how they needed to change that much more crisply and clearly. Um, and so I set off to, to, to see if there was a whole way to kind of um, build tools and insights from neuroscience. Um, uh, I mean, I was really thinking about it from about 2002, 2003, but 2007, I pulled together the first conference called the First Neuroleadership Summit. Um, I think we had 50 people there. Um, this year, uh, we'll have about 700 um, in a big, big venue in New York City in Times Square and probably about 20,000, between 20 and 30,000 this year we're expecting to log in and watch as well in real time, uh, which people can do free. So it's, it's what we've been doing since 2007 and, and, uh, and is really building a whole language for um, how to be a better leader um, that's being used by, by you know, well over a 1,000 organizations are being impacted and using this. But um, we started a movement uh, around doing performance management without ratings. Um, we've started a whole movement in, in how to rethink learning, and now we're starting a movement in um, a really different way of attacking uh, bias and inclusion as well, which we can talk about. But essentially, we, we, we have a team of scientists and we organize and synthesize all this really important science coming out so that organizations can actually use it to make people better. Um, that's basically what we do. And David, it's, you know, it's great to have you here. Ed. We're so um, you know, intrigued by all the work that you've been doing because, of course, it affects the work that Relly and I and others do related to emotional and social intelligence, the School of Positive Psychology, and now I'll focus where I am, which is the science of courage, working with um, national SWAT teams and, uh, and working warriors. Your brain at work, strategies for overcoming distraction, regaining focus, and working smarter all day long, was a real entree into the focus that you have right now, which is beyond bias. Can you talk a little bit about how you evolved from your thinking in that area, in, you know, how your brain is framed, to how the biases might be working either for or against us, uh, not only in our workday, but in how we hire talent. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I always, I've always been curious about um, the things that we don't know um, about, about our brains. And um, uh, I'm, also really, um, I'm also really curious to help organizations with the, the biggest um, challenges they have, the things that the, the sort of gnarliest challenges. And um, the, the two of those things came together about five years ago. Uh, I run a lot of events for um, like the CHROs and heads of talent organizations and CEOs. 
And we're often asking them, like, what's the thing that you're putting a lot of time and money into, causing a lot of pain in the organization, like it really needs fixing, and you're not actually getting anything like the, the results you want. Um, and uh, mitigating the biased decisions came up just absolutely the top of that list. Um, it's the issue that companies were really struggling with, and that struggle has got much worse and much louder and much more public in the last few years. I mean, I, I saw in the New York Times on, on, on the weekend, um, you know, big ad, ad agencies are being required by their, their brands to, you know, be more diverse, for example. And, um, you know, there's, there's starting to be, you know, real money in these things. So anyway, cut a long story short, we, we, we saw a real area of pain. And um, my hypothesis is where there's something that lots and lots of smart people are putting their time and, and, and effort and money um, and not getting results. Um, my, my hypothesis is, is, is that we've misunderstood something about how people function. Um, and we've got an incorrect assumption about kind of why people do what they do um, at the heart of, 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 of an impasse. Um, and that's been the case around performance management in another field we had an impact in where, you know, we've really misunderstood um, the impact of just, you know, labeling people as a number. Um, and uh, we had some incorrect assumptions. But anyway, in the bias area, um, it's a very kind of disquieting and, and, and sort of uncomfortable area because essentially what goes on is, is that, you know, millions of leaders um, can feel really, really, really confident in their decisions. Um, you know, every cell of their body feeling absolutely right about a decision while they're completely and utterly wrong um, and missing information that people around them can absolutely see. <laughs> um, and it's an incredibly common phenomenon that executives make really bad decisions at times, both around, around uh, business decisions like investing and planning, um, as well as people decisions, which is, is, you know, a lot of noise around that, obviously, but you know, they make really bad decisions and they, they feel absolutely right, but they can be absolutely wrong. Um, and they'll notice it in hindsight. Um, and the team will notice it. And some of these things, you know, cost a lot of lives as well. Some of these decisions um, cost tremendous lives and, and, and tremendous, uh, you know, loss of, of, of human capital in every sense. So, um, so essentially, it's a, you know, it's a really big, gnarly problem. No one had been able to address it. And we thought, hey, I wonder if we can get into how the brain works and see if we can actually um, develop a solution. Um, and Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in this space, um, he actually suggested that someone do this research. He suggested mm -hmm. in his book that, you know, just being smarter doesn't make you less biased. In fact, it probably makes you more biased. Um, and knowing about bias doesn't make you less biased. But he suggested that someone go and research um, the underpinning brain processes involved so we might be able to, to find an answer. And so that's what we've done. Um, it's about two and a half years research, and we've evolved a framework for thinking really differently about it that's actually helping millions and millions of employees now across about 40 of the largest companies in, in North America now. So, that's David, this is, is huge. i got a couple questions, and then we want to actually get into some of the common biases uh, that we have. Um, <clears throat> I love uh, Kahneman's work, and, and, you know, Kathy and I bring that into organizations, thinking fast, thinking slow. I'm sure all the biases, you know, come in if you can – do more of the thinking uh, slow, one of the things that we end up talking about in organizations are, and I, I'm sure it's the same thing you see, because I thought it, therefore it's a fact. My thoughts are facts. And the organization is such that they don't necessarily challenge it, and if someone's got seniority and they have position, you know, is the organization even going to challenge what someone thinks is a fact? Um, so 
So before we get into the biases, how, how did you go about researching it? And then we'll walk through the different biases that you have here. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really complex thing to do. One of the biggest challenges is there's over 100 biases. Um, and there's just no way to, uh, to go after mitigating bias if there's over 100. You know, all you say in the end is, you know, try to think slower. Um, you know, try to be more thoughtful, try to be more reflective. But I can tell you, every piece of technology and infrastructure and everything around us is not encouraging slower thinking. <laughs> right, encouraging right. faster thinking, right? So it's not exactly a winning formula to say, let's, you know, just try and think slower. Um, but that's all you can do if you've got 100 biases. So, so what we basically did is said, um, I wonder if, if we can understand the patterns beneath the 100, um, like... Let's look into how the brain creates bias and see if we can work out anything. We thought maybe we'd find maybe 8 or 10 or 12 kind of major uh, cognitive um, quirks that drive all those 100 or so biases. And we thought if we could find what the quirks are, maybe there'll be a, an insight there. Because essentially, if you look at all the biases and you know much about cognitive science, you, know, you quickly see that a lot of biases are, are variants of a very similar mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the mechanism of... Of, of valuing things that are um, just more recent, um, uh, you know, that turns up in, you know, a dozen different biases, for example. So, so there, are, there, are, there are these mechanisms that we understood and our, our neuroscientists understood, and what we did was a, a giant kind of card sort of, of let's see if we can organize these into underpinning mechanisms. Um, and it took a long time. It took two and a half years to get right. Um, but eventually we got there, and what was really fantastic is we were able to get it to five. Uh, we actually found there were five major mechanisms, um, and that meant that we could actually um, you know, develop something where people could, could really mitigate uh, much more powerfully than we've ever, ever been able to do. And really, we've developed the world's first mitigation strategy for, for unconscious bias that you know, hasn't existed before. When you uh, look at some of the biggest financial debacles in the history uh, of the U.S., for example, you've got the Madoff issue that... We use now um, for teaching strategies uh, at the uh, FBI Academy, and we talk a lot about um, why is it people continue to invest with him? Like, what was it? What was the bias with Madoff? Can you talk a little bit about that in decision-making? I think that's a good one for people to kind of dig their teeth into. It's very real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there, there could have been a series of different biases in place there, depending on kind of as, a, as an investor where you were positioned. If you were um, similar to him, like a similar age, similar background, um, you're probably subject to what's called a similarity bias, um, where you automatically trust someone that much more because you, you seem to have common goals, common experiences. Um, and so people, you know, wouldn't have dug in because they, you know, there's a strong sense of trust. Um, you know, salespeople of all type use that against us. Um, if you were, um, if you were really uh, physically close, like in the city, and he was in the city, and um, you were close socially as well, um, you could suffer from a, a distance bias, where you know you're valuing that company just that much better because they're you know, physically close, but socially, physically, um, and, and and other things. So it could be a number of different biases, but essentially what happens is we we need these shorthand ways of solving problems, we, we have to have shorthand ways of solving problems because, um, you know, just processing a, a, an image of an office, you know, walk into your office, processing that image, hugely, hugely complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of data that you have to process if you, you know, walk into an office 
and just, you know, see your desk and see what's going on. The amount of data you have to process would, you know, freeze um, most supercomputers in terms of, you know, what, do, you know, all these lines and shapes and colors and shades, what do they all mean? Um, if you had to freshly process the image of your office, you, you'd, you'd explode, right? But your brain goes, oh, yeah, that's a desk. You know, those lines and shades there, that's a desk. And those, you know, those colors there, oh, that's a chair. Um, oh, yeah, and that's my computer. And, and, and you, you use patterns. You have to use patterns. The world can't be noise. It has to be distinguished fresh each time. But these, these patterns and these shorthand that we have to use, um, you know, so that we don't have to think, um, these patterns get us in trouble. And um, there is a series of different biases that are essentially, um, you know, unconscious shorthand that we use mm-hmm. that, that on the whole are helpful, um, but actually can get us in trouble in, um, in, in other ways as well. That's the, that's the summary. So, so David, because um, you, you hit it a couple and we want to get into some more, but what you found, you said there were five kind of key things uh, that lead us to the biases, then we'll explain the biases. You know, and in one of them, I think you said, and this is what Kahneman said, um, you know, we don't like to think. We want to take a shorthand, a shortcut, because thinking is hard, and we'd rather have more certainty than uncertainty. Yeah, that's right. Thinking is aversive, uh, Kahneman says, you know, something we want to avoid. Um, so um, there's, there's five types of bias. One is a similarity bias. One is called an expedience bias, which I'll dig into now. There's an experience bias, a distance bias, and a safety bias. So, hmm. so you've got all five, and we'll go into the bit. An expedience bias is a really easy one for people to understand first. Um, an expedience bias is essentially just taking a shortcut mentally because you don't really want to put the effort in. Um, and so, you know, you just, you know, let's say you're looking at, a, at an employee who's done really well at selling, and you assume they must be a good manager because they've been a good salesperson. And so you're just jumping to conclusions without actually doing the real math of, oh, what are the skills for selling and what are the actual skills for managing? Um, and, you know, do they correlate? And of the skills for managing, does that person actually have those or not? Um, and, and it actually takes some cognitive effort to do that. And so in the, in the, you know, the goal of minimizing effort, we just go, well, they've succeeded at that, they'll probably succeed at that. Um, and we make some bad decisions as a result. So, so an expedience bias is essentially just, um, like cutting a corner to save effort, um, and uh, where where definitely uh, that one could have been involved in the you know someone's um, investment decision of all types. Um, we go with surface data, we go with surface appearance. You know we assume tall people are smarter, um, and uh, you know we make all these judgments that are just expedient, and we've not really unpacked how we made the decision. Um, now the good news with expedience bias is it's actually the only one. Um, I guess that's bad news, there's only one, but you know, it is one that you can mitigate by essentially asking people to find their own errors. Um, find what? Errors? errors? Find their own errors, find their own mistakes. Right. Um, and, but it's tricky. I mean, the, 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 um, yeah, so you, 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 if you get people to look for their own mistakes, they'll actually find them, but it doesn't work for any of the other biases. Now, what about as far as the, kind of the mitigation of that, just kind of having someone play devil's advocate, you know, there's a lot of things around decision theory that, you know, someone should at least come up with a kind of a counter, which is, is the, it may mitigate some of the expediency. Yeah, so um, having someone else review your thinking um, mm-hmm. is really effective. Um, slowing down and mapping out um, the why of your decision is really good, like finding your own errors uh, can work there. 
Um, And um, with many of them, having other people involved in the decision is is really helpful on multiple levels. So, you know, not making a decision alone, but actually checking your thinking with other people, um, that that can be really helpful. But this is one you can mitigate a little bit in your own head by saying, all right, um, uh, I want to. I want to actually see where I could be wrong here. Like mm-hmm. looking for where you could make, right. you could have made a mistake, and actually, you know, trying to find your own mistake. Um, that's that's where people can can unpack that. Kind of, and you know, David, as you're talking about this, uh, when we even express the desire for someone to check our thinking, that's very important. And Raleigh, you you and I know in the context of uh, emotional and social intelligence, that takes and requires two behaviors. One, interpersonal relationships that matter, and two, reality checking. So, David, when you are instructing people in this process of, of uh, if you will, looking beyond their bias, how do you start? What, what's a program look like, and where do you begin this process? Because as Relly and I and you know so painfully, when we work with large organizations, it doesn't matter whether they're industry or military or paramilitary. They don't know where to begin. So yeah. can you give us an idea of how you get them started on this pathway? Because we can go off into lots of conceptual models here, but people want to know what's the first practical step to checking your thinking. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and essentially it's... it's um, it doesn't matter whether we're doing a, a kind of in-person experience for you know half a day or a day or two days or or a, or a, a digital experience where people are getting little little drips of content you know every week for a month or a virtual experience online or different things. It doesn't matter what kind of it looks like. What matters for us is what are the key insights that managers need to have, um, and then the actions they need to take to to build specific habits on the back of those. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's really about insight, action, habit, um, and for us, the, the, the science of learning is, is so central here because we, we have a, a, a we have a, a DNI practice. We also have a learning practice, which is around how do you really drive you know, actual behavior change through learning. Um, and separately, we have a performance practice. But in, in our learning practice, we just we know that we need to facilitate the strongest possible insight for people, um, so that they'll be willing to set an action, um, and that that action will then will then help them hopefully build toward a habit. So we look at what are the insights. So one of the insights um, that, uh, that you know, managers need to have is that it's possible to feel completely right and be completely wrong, um, mm-hmm. and that's you know, actually really dangerous. Um, and that if they want to you know, succeed, they're going to want to ha- kind of hack their brain around this. Because if you just go off your gut and just go, oh, I feel right, you, know, you really will make some poor decisions. And so that's a, that's a really important insight. There are different ways of, of getting managers to that without having to kind of beat them over the head with it. Um, you don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but it's a really important insight. Um, and the second, and you know, and I guess part of that is that, you know, is just getting managers to realize that that matters as well. Um, and, and at the same time, it doesn't matter for every decision. You can't mitigate bias about, you know, every decision you make and every interaction you have. It's impossible. But we find that, that executives start doing something differently a couple of times a week. Um, about two to two and a half times a week, they start thinking differently or acting differently uh, once they've learned this framework. But here's the here's the big thing. They they need to recognize that um, that you know they can feel right and be totally wrong. They need to see that this matters, and and also see how this connects directly to to, to being successful, you know, themselves and their company. 
I mean, it's really about making better decisions, right? Not just about being more diverse or inclusive. It's really about making better decisions across the board, making more adaptive decisions that, that other people will really respect. And pretty much every executive will get on board with that idea. If you say to people, you're biased, stopping bias, they'll say, I'm not racist. We just saw that in the media. People mistook, um, you know, talking about implicit bias that Hillary talked about um, as, you know, attack, uh, an attack about racism. And it's totally not. They're totally different things. Um, everyone has bias. Not everyone is racist. They're really different things. Um, and what you don't want is people to say, well, you just told me I'm biased. I'm not biased. Um, and, and the reason they say that is they don't actually feel biased. People don't actually feel right. biased. They just feel right. Um, and so, so you don't want to kind of get that reaction, you know, coming back. Um, so we do a lot of work at the start on just recognizing, A, it can happen, and B, it's good to mitigate, right? And, and then for us, it's, it's introducing the, um, you know, what are the, what are the categories? Mm-hmm. So they can identify a bias happening um, most common way it's being used is in real time in a team. So a team's getting together to make a decision. Uh, anyone on the team can now call that a bias. And with just five categories of bias, uh, it's possible to really see these in real time in others. Yeah. Um, or the other option is to see these ahead of time in yourself. So before you go to make a decision. Because um, the trouble so, is, it doesn't matter how much you educate people about bias. I'll finish on this and come back to you, but... It's such an important point. You literally never see yourself being biased, even when you learn our model or any good model. You never actually so see the, yourself in real time being biased. I was just going to say, possible. David, the cue there is getting, you just said something very important, getting people in advance to recognize and identify their biases. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's, you have to be in advance. And the reason for that is, um, you know, just like you can't, like, you know, send an email and schedule a meeting at the same time in your head. Um, you, know, you have to do one and the other. And you, you know, you can't do two math tasks at once in your head. Um, we, have, you know, we have very limited resources to consciously process the world. And because of that, you literally can't be making a decision or, or thinking about something and at the same time be reflective of whether you're being biased or not. It's, it's much, much, much too, too complex to do both of those things at once. It's physically impossible. So you just don't. Um, and, and, and a lot of, a lot of, sort of learning and, and, and solutions and interventions have completely ignored this fact and have just been trying to teach people to, to kind of, um, you know, be less biased in the moment. It just doesn't work. So, um, so you never really know that you're being biased, and we're being biased a huge amount of the time, you know, totally unaware of it. So, so what we've got to do is, is help people with a framework to catch bias, ideally ahead of time in themselves or in real time in teams. That's, that's the goal overall. So, so ahead of time, and that's probably you know the idea that we talk about a lot. You have to name it to tame it. So you kind of bring up the insight you're talking about. But then is is one of the strategies, you know, having people in the team kind of go through this model, and we'll we'll go we'll spend a little more time going through each of these, but going through your five areas to say, okay, before we move forward, do we need to? Is there any one of these present? Because they probably are, and then then talk more about it. Yeah, exactly. Is there any one of these that could be a problem here? You know, could, could our decision-making be being skewed by, for example, a safety bias? You know, are we over-worrying about the downside here and as a result not thinking about the upside? You know, yeah. is that biasing us? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's literally just running through the list quickly and saying, you know, are there any biases here? And people with a little bit of training on the model uh, really quickly get it and yeah. are able to spot really quickly if there's a, if there's a possible bias happening. So... Well, we do want to go into a couple more of these, but just, David, when you're in organizations, 
you know, a lot of this we said in the intro is, is that we're operating from, you know, basically being unconscious about things or automatic. You know, from the neuroscience world, what are you telling folks about, you know, what percent of the time are we operating, you know, unconsciously or automatically? Oh, my gosh. It's a really scary answer. Um, it's, it's, it's much, 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 much scarier than you might imagine. Um, I mean, this becomes really clear when you go and live in a different country where you know we can't speak the language at all. Yeah. Like, um, and you see, you know, just how many things you've automated, and, and you right. discover you can't do anything. <laughs> like go yeah. to Japan or China, or you know, somewhere where you have no words, so not not even a Latin right, right. language where you can pick some. We have zero. Um, you you don't know the numbering. You know nothing. Yeah. Um, and you get to see just how. Um, how hard you actually have to work for very basic things that you never know, you know, normally have to think of. So, but that's, that's not a great analogy at all. Uh, I mean, it's, it sort of gives you a sense of it. I mean, the, tr- the truth is um, unconsciously um, we're processing millions and millions and millions of variables per second, and, and consciously we can think about you know, three or four things. Um, and you know, consciously, um, our ability to consciously process the world, if you think of that as, about a cubic foot of space um, in, in the air in front of you. If you think about a cubic foot of space as your conscious resources, then non-consciously is about the Milky Way by comparison. Um, well, say, that, so say that one again. That's a great metaphor. Say it again. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you, if you, um, if you, if you um, kind of describe how much you can hold in mind at one moment as a cubic foot or ascribe it um, in space in front of you, um, so, that, you know, so, so basically, imagine a cubic foot in front of you. That's how much you can hold in your mind at once right? Um, in terms of making a decision, solving a problem. Um, the amount that your unconscious brain can hold in mind at once, the amount of processing that can happen in that is literally the Milky Way by comparison. It's, wow. It's tr- trillions of times bigger and, and just literally impossible to imagine. And it's really scary when you do. Um, we, we, we really are, um, you know, enormously, uh, we are driven by, um, you know, completely unconscious things. Um, all that said, it doesn't mean that we're mechanistic and predetermined and have no free will. It doesn't mean that we're just right. a machine. It's a dangerous thought um, that results in in both uh, lower ethics but also lower performance um, from from studies. So yes, we're, we're incredibly machine-like, but we also have the ability to to tweak and, and alter that machine through choices we make. So um, it's not it's not all it's not all bad news. So. Uh, I'm wondering, and Kathy, do you want to go through some of the biases? Because we have, you know, your five yeah. areas, and we've just kind of touched on them. Yeah, and let me just uh, recap for the audience the five areas, and then, David, you can pick one that you think, um, from your experience in uh, teaching in this learning organization that you have, um, which ones are probably most salient for the bulk of individuals, you know, for the main audience that you speak to. So one is similarity. The second is expedience, which has to do with uh, beliefs and confirmation. Uh, the third is experience. Uh, these are things that we hold near and dear to us, obviously, that give us hindsight or foresight. And then um, distance. Uh, and then safety. So, David, why don't you pick one of those that you think has the most impact on people's bias? Yeah, it's um, you know they're all they're all um, really interesting. Um, 
mean, the one that's in in mind at, mo- at the moment for um, a lot of organisations is similarity bias, or, or they're dealing with issues that come from it. Um, and um, I, I mean, I'll give you the brief explanation of each, just so you sort of see them, and then I'll dig into similarity. So, you know, similarity is basically your brain decides that people who are similar to you in any way are, are better than others. That's basically what goes on. Expedience bias is your brain. Um, just likes things that are easy, and if it feels right, then you decide it must be true. Um, expe- ex- experience bias, on the other hand, different to expedience. Experience bias is, is the belief that you see the world accurately. Um, we're actually, I believe that we one. Only really, we, we think that we see the world accurately, um, okay. but we actually only see the world through our filters, and everyone sees it differently. Um, and so, you know, we believe that we see the world correctly, but we all see the world just the way we happen to see the world. Um, and um, distance bias is an interesting one, that things that are closer to us are valued higher, closer in time, space, and also socially. Um, and then finally, safety bias is, the, is, is this focus on mitigating risk, um, you know, over and over and over, and an and, and inability to think about reward when you're focused on mitigating risk. So, um, for example, you, you know, People often report when they fire a troublesome employee, you know, that they, they don't understand why they waited so long um, to do that. It's usually they were, they were scared of, of sort of information that would be lost. Um, so, so there's a there's that safety bias. Anyway, so similarity bias, um, it's really quirky. Your, um, your brain automatically classifies someone who's similar to you as better than others. Um, and you can do it based on, on any variable. Um, it'll depend on kind of surrounding conditions. So if you're in a room full of really tall people and you're not as tall and you find someone also not as tall, um, you know, you'll, your brain will process all the information from that person differently to the tall people. Um, and uh, based on, uh, you know, it can be based on anything. It can be race, it can be gender, it can be, you know, just about anything that you latch onto. But essentially um, what happens is your brain decides people who are similar to you are uh, to be trusted more, uh, we want to see them win. We feel their feelings more. We have more empathy. Um, and we just literally let them into our heads that much more. Um, any information is processed much more richly uh, from a person like that. So, so similarity bias, um, what happens is, you know, male executives hire other male executives because they, it just feels right. Um, but the opposite is true. You'll have a, you know, a diverse person will hire another diverse person because that'll also feel right. Um, and, you know, what, what, what happens is a real lack of diversity in organizations. Um, and it could just be maybe, maybe you hire for gender and race well, but you're accidentally always going to the same, you know, two or three universities, that, you know, to, to, to sort of have this, this similarity between people. What we know is that um, diverse and inclusive teams are much smarter than non-diverse and inclusive teams. So teams that have uh, lots of different ways of thinking um, and really let people speak up, these teams are much, much smarter. They make better creative decisions, better um, linear decisions, and they also find errors faster. So it's, it's such a good thing to have a diverse team, um, we, uh, but we have the similarity bias working against it. Um, and so that's, you know, that's an interesting one. And, and you'll, you know, you'll, find, um, you'll, you'll find that you may not feel, it's highly unlikely that you'll feel any differently consciously um, interacting with someone similar um, you may, feel, you may feel something, but your brain is doing a ton that's really different that you, you, you won't be able to access consciously. You won't, you won't notice that um, your brain doesn't pick up um, you know, signals of pain from some one group and not the other, but you know, that's what goes on, for example. So that's a, that's a really big one, the similarity bias. 
And then uh, there's a lot of biases that you have here in the expedience, and that kind of goes back to where I think in the organizations that we're all in, you know, everything is expedient. And so then as a consequence, you get into some of these, you know, like uh, maybe you can highlight a couple of these, you know, some we know like confirmation bias, you know, but some of there's some different ones in there, the hot hand fallacy, the halo effect. You want to highlight some of those? I think, you know, these, all these different individual biases are really great for writing books and, um, you know, <laughs> writing columns and stuff, but there's just too many of them. Yeah. Um, and what we've been trying to do is, is, is help people understand the real mechanism yeah. at the heart of all these different biases so that you can actually see them happening. Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example, um, and I'll give you an example of, of uh, a little bit deeper into expedience bias and sort of how it feels, you know. Um, uh, a bat and a ball together, this is a thought experiment, a, a bat and a ball together costs $1.10. The bat is a dollar more than the ball. How much is the ball? What's yeah, the I know answer that comes to mind? So I use this one, cents. too. So basically, everybody says 10 cents. Uh, right. Everyone says 10 cents, right? So bat and a ball together are $1.10. The bat's a dollar more than the ball. How much is the ball? 10 cents, right? Well, you know, what's happening is your brain latches on to the available data and just tries to find the shortcut, right? Yeah. But it's, it's totally not 10 cents because um, together they're $1.10 and the bat's a dollar more. So, you know, it adds up to more than, um, more than $1.10. So um, you've got to actually do some complex math. The answer is 5 cents, but you've got to do some complex yeah. math because, you know, it's 5 cents and the, ball, the bat is $1.05, right? Yeah. Together it adds up to $1.10. Right. So you, I, you can see I think that was David with, with people who are in finance. It's a little scary. <laughs> because yeah, yeah, yeah. All people in finance cents. and people and it's in that second statement that the uh, you know the bat is a dollar more. They just kind of gloss over, and that's kind of what you're saying from expediency. They don't really hear that the that bat is a dollar more, and therefore they just go with ten cents. But exactly. that's exactly what happens when you go to purchase something like a car, or some other big purchase, like a mortgage, because it's those variables that require the larger, as, as David's saying, the larger qualitative and quantitative aspects of math, right, that people want to avoid. Yeah. They know something sounds good, but they can't believe the math. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that mechanism... Um, of uh, of just like not properly processing something, yeah. right? We we want people to understand that and be able to see it in real time in themselves and others, right? We're just something's been like not like it's almost like a box that's not been opened. You know, you just pick that box up and put it on the shelf, but you haven't like opened it to see what's in it, right? Um, and actually turns out not to be the right box, you know? um, and it's leaking and full of fluid and oil that's going to wreck everything. So um, so we we sort of you know. This mechanism of just catching yourself, putting a you know a box on the shelf, you know mentally, um, without really checking what's in it, um, you know people can 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 get a sense of that and they can start to see it in themselves, um, and they can even easier start to see it in others. And if you have a common language for bias, yeah. it's not it's not about calling people stupid or racist. If you have a common language, um, people will call it out. Um, and this is what we find in organizations uh, you know, like BlackRock, who went public recently with, you know, working with us. Um, they find that, that, you know, people call out biases all the time. Um, this is, a, you know, this is the richest company in the world. Uh, using our work to, to mitigate bias across financial decisions and people decisions. Um, and they find that on average, about a couple of times a week, people actually 
notice one of these biases and start thinking about doing things differently. Um, and that can be pretty powerful. That's, you know, per person. Um, that can be pretty powerful. So we're looking at, at, at kind of how can you really identify the mechanism um, and be able to see it. Um, it's easier to see it in others. Um, and that's, that's one example with, uh, with expedience. Back, back to you. So, and then that's why the insight, like you're saying, <clears throat> teaching people this ahead of time so they know it. Um, <clears throat> I'm just looking at some of these. What about representative bias? Maybe just a quick example of that one, then we'll go to experience. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a type of expedience bias. There's a whole type of, a whole raft of biases that are essentially um, categorized as expedience bias. So, you know, if you just heard information, it, it seems more valuable than something you heard yesterday. That's an expedience bias. Um, if something, if there's a lot more, um, you know, if, 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 if there's a lot more um, of, of, you know, white male people in your group than, than others, um, you know, you'll be biased that way. So there's all sorts of different biases that happen that essentially are just these, these kind of lazy shortcuts. So those, those yeah. all categorize as, um, as expedience bias. So expedience bias is a kind of lazy shortcut of, right. you know, using information that's, that's coming to hand easily um, and then sort of putting it together too quickly. One of the things just to highlight, because <clears throat> I think for our listeners, is that halo effect. And, w- and we see this all the time, you know, because someone's positive in one area, therefore they're going to be positive in another area, and that's kind of where you end up getting, you know, the Peter Principle, you know, a great engineer, and now you turn them in, you, now they should be a good leader, right? And so that halo effect can inform, you know, who gets promoted or not. Yeah, super, super common. Um, it's a really interesting one. Experience bias is, is probably the deepest one to understand, and, and probably okay. the most cha- oh, it is the most challenging one to mitigate. Um, I'll talk about that. I mean, experience yeah. bias is, is essentially you you think that you see the world as it actually is, um, and we we can't we can't pull apart the fact that we're actually seeing it through filters um, and through assumptions and through past experiences. Um, it's impossible to kind of pull that apart. Um, do you remember the Do you remember the dress that nearly broke the internet? The blue and gold dress, like his last year the year before. Um, there was a There was a thing in the paper of, of people who would see this dress that was blue and gold, and some people would see it one color, and other people mm. would see it another color, completely different colors, and it was completely surreal because um, it was the exact same thing and just printed in a newspaper. And um, what What happened was, uh, you know, the way you saw that, the colors were, were based on various rods and cones in your brain, whatever, but people couldn't believe that others didn't see it the way they did. It was like, it's impossible for you not to see it like I do, because it's right there in front of me, it's clear as day. And this is the thing, even our visual perception is hugely influenced by, um, by you know, all sorts of unconscious processes, um, you know, never mind how we perceive a, you know, potential candidate. So what, what's happening here is we have this, um, these experiences that color how we see the world, but we assume that we see the world as it is. Now, the, the challenge with this one, you know, with expedience bias, you can mitigate it by, you know, getting people to try to find fault in their own thinking. With experience bias, there's no strategy, actually, that works that we've seen from the lab, and, we, you know, we, we track all the labs working and stuff. There's no strategy that works for mitigating this outside of getting other people to actually uh, weigh in. So you actually need a diverse set of perspectives to mitigate experience bias. And uh, uh, without that, there's no way to get around it. Well, David, you have really been an amazing guest today. It's hard to believe our time is up. Uh, We'll obviously have to have you back to talk more about some of these biases and help our listeners truly understand how we engage in these biases, sometimes without even thinking about them. So thank you so much 
we enjoyed having you with us today, and it's been, uh, you know, a very a real learning experience for me, and I'm sure for Relly as well. Relly, anything you want to add before well, we David, say goodbye? David, if people want to uh, hear your website and how to get more information from you and your organization. Yeah, absolutely. Neuroleadership.com, so N-E-U-R-O, leadership, one word, neuroleadership.com. Our summit's coming up early November, releasing a ton of new research. You can watch that real-time free. Uh, we have programs for individual contributors as well as uh, tons of work with organizations. So and check us out at neuroleadership.com. There's lots of research you can dig into as well. So thanks very much for your interest. Look forward to connecting again. Thank you, David. Well, and just to yeah. our audience, uh, David has done phenomenal work. So hopefully that you, you know, go back and it's going to help you personally. It's going to help you in your organization. So this has been Leadership Development News. Uh, continue to tune in to tune up your performance, and we'll, we'll see and hear you again. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gained some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of The Costa Report, every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. My guest this week was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Clinton, Mr. Henry Cisneros, who'll be here to talk about 13 trends which make investing in real estate in urban centers a sure bet. Don't miss Henry Cisneros this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? 
Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The leaders of today have certain characteristics that set them apart as success stories. These leaders have discovered how to lead in ways that transform their organizations. Now, you can discover the same concepts, insights, and practices that have led them to success. Inside Transformational Leadership is produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll explore how to lead change and transform your own leadership every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 